Just after midnight, we were pretty much on this spot, ready for one minute past midnight to make the very first call to my father, Saronis Harrison, the first chairman of Vodafone. And duly at one minute past 12, I picked up the phone. This phone here, actually, if you can see it, picked it up, nice clear line, made the call. And there was my father, the other end of the phone, picking up the receiver to hear me say, Happy New Year, Dad, it's Mike here. This is the first call ever made on a UK cellular network. And that was the story of midnight on the 31st of December 1984. The network was real and the future had arrived. The Vodafone Analog Network was launched on the 1st of January 1985, and as we heard in that introduction, the first call being made between London and Newbury at midnight on that date. It was the first cellular network to launch in the United Kingdom. By the year 2000, Vodafone's enlarged group is now the largest mobile telecommunications company in the world, and one of the top 10 companies by market capitalization on the planet. As of today, Vodafone operates in 22 countries, has over half a billion subscribers and over 100,000 employees. We just heard the first call, but really, where did it all begin? Today on The Great Indoors, we meet one of Vodafone's first employees who will forever go down as a legend in the industry and can proudly lay claim to making the first ever sale that added subscriber number one to the Vodafone network. Ivan Don was part of the Nucleus sales team established by Vodafone just four months prior to that first call on the 1st of January 1985. This marked the start of a 20-year career with Vodafone, and Ivan led leading groundbreaking initiatives such as the explosive launch of BlackBerry in 2001. Later, Ivan moved into FinTech, and it was also the director of mobile at Gamma Telecom, a UK B2B telecoms firm where he was responsible for their MVNO. And more recently, he formed a startup dedicated 100% to electric motorcycles. So welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast designed to talk about technological advancements and societal change in these turbulent times. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me today is my producer and co-pilot, Marissa Yee. Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the great indoors today, our special guest, Mr. Ivan Don. Ivan, welcome. Thank you. As I always ask my guests, where are you enjoying the great indoors today, Ivan? Uh, I've, I've come home from work early to uh, get here, but I'm back home um, in my office in the house. And, uh, and the house is uh, about 28 miles from central London, a place called Amersham. Ah, nice. Nice, I know it well. And and what have you done at home during this pandemic and this lockdown just to make working more efficient or comfortable? I guess I was probably always fortunate that I had an office so I could lock myself away and be quiet in there and uh, insulated from the noises outside. I guess during the first lockdown, we had the most fantastic weather here in the UK. So I was preparing my next sort of um, venture and that I could do very easily from home. So it was a nice combination of sort of going out and um, riding my bicycle every day for a little bit and coming home, working, and um, and just get preparing for the next, the next episode. So today we're going to talk about Vodafone, right? Yeah. And we're going to take a look back. Uh, I think in this podcast series, we've always, you know, uh, we're always looking to the future. We're always looking at innovation. But I think sometimes we need to just take a breath and look back, and and I think Vodafone was a huge, well, and still is such a huge entity, a huge, fantastic story of innovation and, and technology, and also one of our biggest customers. And of course, Ivan, as I mentioned in the introduction, you you were a key individual in the in the early days of Vodafone. So let's wind back time and start right back at the early days of Vodafone, and um, talk a little bit about the culture, the innovation, and the people. Let's let's start from the beginning, from your perspective, if we may. 
Yeah, I think it was um, an interesting mixture of people because as we were born out of the Rakel Electronics Group, there were some very uh, sort of long-serving, uh, steady people who were plucked from various parts of that group and assembled into Vodafone uh, to create it. The beginnings were, were were kind of almost accidental because Rakel was approached by I forget his name now, but a quite a well-known Swedish entrepreneur, um, and Serenus Harrison was asked by this guy whether Vodafone or whether whether Brakel would be bidding for a cellular license. Um, he hadn't heard of cellular, wasn't aware of it at all, never sold B2B. This um, Swedish guy came on board as a consultant, and I think there was a big bounty if they got a license, and they did. And in fact, the, the bids were so poor that um, S, um, Stanford Research Institute, who were assessing the bids for the government, called Vodafone in and said, look, guys, everyone's bid's been absolutely dreadful. Yours is the least dreadful, so we think we can probably knock yours into shape. Could you go away and deal with these points and then represent it to us, which they did, and they got the license. So that was um, the, in, in those days, because we had deregulation telecommunications in the UK under Margaret Thatcher, so there had to be a, a non-government, a non-government-owned business so bt was government at that stage mm -hmm. uh so there had to be a competitor from the public sector and vodafone won that license uh bt was also obliged to work with a partner they couldn't do it on their own so they chose securical which is a strange strange choice but there you go and um so we were pitted against the, the might of bt and i should say also probably the uh, somewhat clumsy uh, culture they had there so it actually wasn't that hard to look really good when you're dealing with an incumbent um nationalized telco and how was the, how was the culture back in those days did it did any and the, and the feeling of innovation and did people realize they were on the cusp of something groundbreaking i don't think people realized quite how big it was it was a bit like an iceberg the most ambitious projection for market size that vodafone had when i joined the company was one million customers in the uk Bear in mind, the population was probably about 58 million back then. And um, half of those would be ours and half would be uh, the competition. Certainly, if you had talked about penetration rates, even of 10% in the early 90s, people have told you you were unhinged. And if you talked about penetration rates of over 100%, you would have been locked up. So no, they never really realized how big this was going to be. And of course, when we launched the business in 85, there were only four and a half billion people on the planet. So the idea that you would have seven billion phones on the planet at some point in the company's future was just nonsensical because people weren't really projecting forward how, how, how yeah. huge the world population would, would become in a relatively short space of time. So I think that no, people were very excited. We saw a big opportunity. But nobody realized how big it was going to become. In mm. fact, you know, a lot of the basic design was, was all based around uh, assumptions of relatively limited growth. So things like uh, our national number groups, we, we, didn't, we didn't think we would need that many. Yes, I think it became one of, those, one of those businesses that grew much faster than anyone had ever planned. Therefore, there were always growing pains, issues at the beginning, really early on with capacity problems. One of the things that Vodafone introduced was a minimum call charge at the beginning because they thought people were going to buy these phones at huge, huge expense and then not use them. So we had this £15 minimum call charge each month. Well, actually, everybody was going so much over the minimum that they abolished it quite quickly because it became something that the competition would, <laughs> would sell against. Yeah. In fact, being a billing company, it would probably interest you to know that when we launched, the only thing we didn't have in place was billing. Right. And the view was, well, the initial customers will be pretty well healed. Uh, they're not going to be suffering from bill shock. If they don't get a bill for three months, they'll probably thank us. And in fact, it was about three months before we were able to issue a single bill. And I guess if you're going to a market where the early adopters have got a lot of money to afford the technology in the first place, then you know they can pick up the first bill when it comes through. But bills were very, very big in those days. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking hundreds of pounds a month right. per yes. subscriber. Yeah. Um, not as an average, but certainly the high users were up in the hundreds. Now, we talked about it then. Vodafone today, 
has half a billion customers around the globe, which is a phenomenal number, of course, and, and it has over 100,000 employees. But Ivan, you were responsible for customer number one, correct? Way back. Yeah. So tell that story because that, that, that's an amazing story. Well, I, I guess it was um, – I was employee 101, which actually makes me sound as though I arrived quite late in the day, but I arrived <laughs> – in September 84, the network launched in January 85. So I was about four months ahead of uh, launch. And there was a kind of nuclear sales team that was assembled to go out and hit the streets, basically in central London, because that's the only place where we had coverage when we started. So um, we were very, very, being a technology business, uh, Raykel was very, very particular about training. And they had their own training college in a, in a very nice facility um, in Berkshire called Heckfield Place. And we were summoned to Heckfield for a two-week course, which was residential. We were allowed out at the weekend in the middle. So we went on this two-week residential course to be trained on everything there was to know about cellular, which wasn't much, but we knew it. So that was great. That first weekend when we went off back, back to our homes for the weekend, um, I, uh, for, interestingly, the, the contracts manager, the last presentation we had was from the contracts manager who presented to us the paperwork that we would be using to sign customers as and when we were unleashed on the marketplace 10 days later. And I had a sample of the paperwork and I just thought the obvious thing to do was to get that, was to, was to get an order. So when I came back that weekend, I had an order and I saw Steve Phillips, who was the sales director, uh, who had come on the Sunday evening to be with us um, to welcome us back for the second week. And I said, oh, Steve, I've got something for you. And I handed him this envelope. And I think for a moment, he might have thought that I was resigning. Oh, my God, this is the first resignation. And he pulled out and saw <laughs> this order. So there was a double amazement, relief that I wasn't resigning and delight that we'd already got an order. So the next morning, he was a great showman. In those days, we had these wonderful things called overhead projectors. You'll remember them. Uh, I, and Steve yes. had taken a transparency, an acetate of the order, and with great drama, he, he had this acetate on the overhead projector and his opening words on the morning were, yesterday, history was made. And he flicked on the overhead projector and there was my order. And I think I became instantly very, very unpopular with everybody in the room because I was the youngest person there <laughs> and the least with the least formal sales training background. And so I think they were all expecting the race to start 10 days later. But as far as I was concerned, as soon as you've got the paperwork, it's a, it's a challenge. You've got to get that form. You've got to get that that order form signed. What was really interesting as as well, Ivan, was you sold all this off paper, right? You didn't have samples or anything to go on. I mean, this was so early days. You you were selling a concept. You were selling. Yeah, we didn't have to start with. Start with we had brochures. Uh, I didn't have a physical piece of hardware. And bear in mind, there was no hand portables to show at that stage. It was all fixed car phones and transportables. But I didn't have a single piece of hardware until very close to the end of December, 84. And so, yes, we were going along, showing people our coverage map, which is a little bit um, a bit shabby, and sort of making promises to where we'd be in quarter one, quarter two, quarter three. It, we used to refer to it as the coffee stain map because it had a sort of brownish color, which sort of showed how <laughs> we were going to expand across the country. And everybody had to buy on trust, really, and both in terms of how the equipment would work and how much our coverage would develop over time. So, yeah. yes, it was all sold off paper, but there was such a huge demand. There were only 10,000 mobile phones in the country at the time, and right. that was on an old um, system that required people to know where you were in the country so that they could use the right prefix for the transmitter that you would be covered by. So you didn't even have a single number. And there was such it was it was a wow. black market for numbers on that system, and so there was a huge pent up demand. So to start with, you were selling to people who had been denied the opportunity to join the old system purely because there was no capacity on it. And then, so that was the start of something huge from there. There was a, a, a meteoric rise from there. What, 
how long did it take till it, it really started picking up? So we're talking around 1984 right now. I would say, I mean, I would say that it was really a kind of white knuckle ride from the start because we never ordered enough equipment. So as you appreciate with supply chains, if you don't order your volumes for for argument's sake for, for, for August now, you're not going to get it. So I think we were re-forecasting to manufacturers of hardware all the time and, of course, to the likes of Ericsson all the time because we were simply seeing the demand rise so much that to begin with, no order that we took could be fulfilled within a month. So somebody ordered a mobile phone and they wouldn't get that installed for at least a month. It was a long time before we got to a point where somebody could order a phone and actually get it delivered within the same week, just because everything was, was really on back order. Um, but I would say that, you know, so from the start, the sales definitely massively outstripped the forecasts. And I don't think we really got to what I'd call a normalized situation where we knew roughly what volume of sales we'd be generating and we had the hardware to fulfill it, probably for a couple of years, something like that. Of course, at that stage, hand portables have started to um, become popular. And mm. um, I'm the first hand portables that I was selling, the Motorola 8000X, was £2,799 plus VAT, and wow. you didn't even get a rapid charger. So um, yeah. you were getting people parting with what is in today's money over £8,000 to buy a phone and wait a considerable time to get it. Wow. And then there was the move to Newbury, right? So I remember now we're going, I remember v v Newbury sort of overnight became the home of Vodafone, right, and became associated so closely with with Newbury. Uh, and I remember as well the office that was above the Curry House. And I remember your office. And obviously, this is when I started, when I came to, to work at, at Vodafone UK. So how was that then, the move to, to Newbury and then everything starting to really build up? Yeah, we were always in Newbury from the start. And the reason really was due to proximity to where the CEO, Jerry went. So Jerry went, lived. Um, so he lived a few minutes drive from Newbury. And in fact, the building that you refer to was originally built as a doctor's surgery. Because that was a very limited space and we were growing very quickly, by the time the company kind of grew up and moved to the new campus, which was around about 2000 and I guess 2001 too, we had 57 buildings around Newbury where we had different either subsidiaries or groups of people working within the same company. So what that tended to do was create quite a fragmented culture, certainly between group subsidiaries, there was quite a bit of sort of rivalry. In some ca some cases, that was quite healthy, uh, other cases, perhaps not. But I think it wasn't until we really moved everybody onto a single campus that it started to break down the barriers that had, um, that had, that had been created through never having planned for the growth that we witnessed. Now, the other interesting thing, and I think this is one of the most interesting things about Vodafone as a service provider anywhere, and that's the fact that it's truly global, right? It, 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 it went completely across the oceans to different markets um, around the world through acquisition. What do you remember about the, the, the international rise of Vodafone? And I think that was pretty much... Well, it was sort of quintessentially uh, sort of British to start with. It was very humble. The first market we went into was Malta, um, which yeah. doesn't sound like a, a very major move in, in terms of uh, globalization. But we bid for a license there and we got it. And um, I think in those days, there weren't that many bids going. So we, we had to throw our hat in where we could. So that was the first one, funnily enough. I, it was some years later before things started to really hot up. Bear in mind that, for example, I was in France in 1990. And France hadn't even launched cellular. They had, uh, well, they had launched sort of what I would call rather backward cellular. But I mean, they had an NMT system in France, which was compared to the quality we had in the UK was very poor indeed, um, limited in capacity. France was really waiting for GSM to take off to to, to change the landscape. Mm -hmm. But so there were markets in the in Europe where we probably wouldn't have wanted to be particularly because the technology 
that they were they were using was just um, was quite primitive. Um, Germany, for example, um, had uh, before GSM again had a, a fairly primitive system, so um, there wasn't really the opportunity to start aligning all countries with a, with a with a single binding technology until the advent of GSM. The work on that started late eighties, but um, we started to see networks launching in about ninety two onwards. And I think once you, it, once you could start to see real economies of scale because you were using a common technology platform, then I think the whole race for globalization became much more compelling. But I mean, it, it didn't really, I didn't think it really started to um, move away from being quite fragmented, uh, disjointed acquisitions. For example, we got into Europolitan in Sweden. They, they were quite bitty. We tried to get into Germany, we couldn't get onto the D2 license, so we ended up with a with a um, a PCS uh, license for uh, what was called um, E+. Obviously, I eventually relinquished that when the management merger ha- ha- took place. But before that, there was the yeah. merger with AirTouch, and that was a very significant one because AirTouch had amassed a lot of properties in Europe. The, the most important one that got us onto a trajectory really was um, the AirTouch one, and I think culturally. I think there was probably much more mindshare between the people in Newbury and the people in AirTouch. Having said that, there was a battle that ensued after that merger, and that battle was because of the previous alliance between Bell Atlantic and and AirTouch. There started to be problems because Vodafone had taken had, had, had taken this merger, and Chris Gent was very very keen to ensure that Vodafone in in the states didn't start to lose any coverage footprint um, through a falling out with Bell Atlantic because Bell Atlantic were very strong on the east side and, and, and their touch is much stronger on the west side. Mm-hmm. And so he went and did a deal and that deal effectively gave 55% of the partnership in the States to Bell Atlantic. And that was massively criticized by people in AirTouch. And actually it was a brilliant deal because it got rid of the conflict, enabled the Vodafone stroke AirTouch position uh, which became Verizon uh, in in the states to um, solidify and continue to be very customer focused, um, but of course, uh, some years later, there was um, an immense pay- payday for Vodafone shareholders when Verizon uh, effectively uh, cut cut themselves loose from the Vodafone joint venture, and uh, I think it was the largest. Yeah. I think it was one of the largest dividend payments ever in in corporate history in the UK. So although Chris was Chris Gent was criticised at the time for rolling over, what he did was diffuse a battle, and then we we earned a massive dividend for many many years from Verizon, and then a massive payout. So those that criticised at the beginning, perhaps just didn't have the vision that Chris had had at the start. Yes, yes, and and Chris, uh, so Christopher Gent, I mean, he was the guy who created the, the, the Vodafone that we know today. If you would, you know, the, the acquisitions he made, um, the personality that he had, I think that really shone through and, and into Vodafone. I, I always remember him being a larger-than-life character with his distinctive braces and pinstripe shirts. If we go back now to sort of a more uh, product kind of roadmap of Vodafone, and we talked right at the beginning of the the initial handsets and everything. What what were the key milestones from a product perspective? What we were offering uh, Vodafone customers moving forward that that really stick out to you, Ivan? I think, to be honest, the the most important thing to customers on a mobile network is being able to make that call when you want and choosing when to end the call and not having either a network that stops you from making calls because it's got congestion or terminates your call prematurely because it has a, a, a hole in the coverage or a handover problem. I think to begin with, what what helped us establish a dominant position in the UK market was the fact that our network performed much better than the competitions and therefore discerning customers were by and large coming to us and that was reflected very much in the corporate sector where i would i would say probably even until mid 90s and slightly beyond vodafone had about 60 percent of all corporate business in the uk so and, and bear in mind that we'd seen 
um, the PCN networks, Orange and uh, Orange, who were a bit of a challenger, one to one, less so, um, it became T-Mobile. The battle was really between ourselves and and the BT Cellnet Brigade, and um, Vodafone was winning hands down, and it was really down to quality of network. There wasn't massive innovation. What I would say is that most of the innovation that I observed either was through standards and us adhering to standards and trying to get new features live in a timely manner, or it was down to handset vendors like Nokia, who were creating more demand by making nicer phones and making cheaper phones. And I don't think when we started, we thought that we would see the sort of the, the fall in cost of, of hardware that we witnessed as we sort of started to get uh, to begin with the prices were fair they, they they you know even three years in you were still paying about a thousand pounds for a hand portable phone but then of course we got towards gsm after six seven years at which point the prices all went massively up because we no longer were people buying sixth generation analog phones they were buying digital phones and these were brand new bits of kit and they were bigger the battery life was less good uh, and they were more expensive so we kind of saw the prices drop and then we saw the prices going up again and it wasn't really until probably mid to late 90s when gsm hardware prices started to really fall off which of course kept on pushing the the market growth the idea of a ten dollar phone would have just been regarded as as ridiculous uh, in in the early days when we were paying you know thousands of pounds or over a thousand pounds for a fixed mobile so i think a lot of the innovation came very much from the handset manufacturers um, standardization the network trying to integrate those new features but bear in mind that for the first six years seven years it was an analog business then it was digital yeah. and the early digital phones the early gsm phones couldn't even generate a text message I mean, they were able to receive text messages, but they couldn't generate text message. Uh, And then when they were able to, it was very clunky. And then, you know, we saw a thing called TGIC T9, which is predictive text. A lot of the innovation really came from manufacturers. So, you know, particularly uh, important products like Nokia Communicator, um, the 9000, when that was launched, that was the first device that had built into it a QWERTY keyboard. It could receive faxes, which we used to send to each other in those days. Yeah. Uh, and you could log on to POP3 or IMAP4 email. So you had in a box something that enabled you to keep in touch with something that hadn't existed when we launched the business, which was at email. And email had grown to become the dominant form of communications in the corporate world. And as a mobile operator, we didn't have a solution. So we'd managed to free people up from their fixed infrastructure, their desks, their offices, their homes for voice. But then in the space of less than a decade, a new technology had come along in the form of email, which then incarcerated people. Again, we used to go on holiday and come back and face hundreds of unread emails because there was no way to access email when you were away from your desktop. Um, so, and I think that's where the the technologies were ahead of, if you like, where mobile was able to deliver. And, and it was products like Communicator, which was a great, a great first effort. But I don't think we really saw a proper email solution until about 2001, when we launched BlackBerry. And that's when we had a product that actually felt as though it had been designed to be the way that you did email, in the sense that it was almost conversational. things I recall I remember the marketing around it because we used um, David Beckham and we had a great soundtrack and, it, and it, it was amazing was Vodafone Live where we packaged together all of those technologies uh, the browser uh, the, it, it was GPRS it, had, it was a camera phone from Sharp the GX10 if I recall correct and there was yeah there was Vodafone Live and that to me was a great piece of consumer marketing to package all those technologies and get them out there. And I, I remember being very fond and thinking that was an incredible 
point in 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 Vodafone's history to be able to do that. I, and I remember you coming up to me with the Sharp GX10 and showing it me because it was the clamshell silver device with with everything. I think that was a really special time. Yeah, I think that was a very exciting time, and I think Vodafone was inspired in what it did. I mean, I I would say that at the time you also had iMode in Japan, and yeah. um, that was a much much more evolved model because you had the developers whereas in the uk and europe we just didn't really have them so i think we had to kind of create homegrown services but it was the first device that integrated as you said the ability to take a picture we couldn't do video of course but the ability to take a picture and send pictures to one another and you could send them across platform as well which is quite nice you didn't have to have the sharp but um, most of them were and you could download games and you could download ringtones and you could download screensavers so there was an element of of a very kind of i would say a very early slightly neanderthal stage of actually buying digital content what there wasn't with live was any notion of drm of digital rights management so if i bought a live handset and i downloaded some ringtones and i paid two pounds fifty for a ringtone i downloaded a game for two pounds fifty or whatever if i moved to my next device I didn't own any of that stuff. They basically were not in the cloud. Yeah, they were in the so. device. And so the notion, although they, although you couldn't actually download music, the closest you get to downloading music was a ringtone, which isn't exactly music. You don't listen to that. They were polyphonic ringtones, if I remember Indeed. as well. Indeed, they were. So they, they sounded much better than anything we'd heard up until that point. And they were had a good gimmick factor. But yes, it was. I think it was a good way to get people into doing new things with phones and i always believe that the success of any product is the extent to which it can influence and change behaviors and that product certainly changed behaviors i think it probably left a lot of people wanting for a whole lot more and obviously i don't think that really happened meaningfully until five years later when uh, apple launched the iphone and, yes. and, and that really was the first point where and this is where i i you know going back to the earlier days it was Nokia who were really bringing innovation to the marketplace and the operators were trying desperately to keep up and, and, and support the features in those products. And then more recently, obviously, it was the arrival of, of, of Apple with iPhone and then Google with, with Android that completely transformed the landscape. If I go back when I was in uh, enterprise mobile in uh, a business that I was working a few years ago, our business customers were using 700 megabytes of data a month. That's all. At the same time, our, our partner network, three, their average consumer was doing five gigs. And they were predicting for 2025, they were predicting an average actual consumption of over 25 gigs. So there's this massive, you know, even though there's a huge amount of offload, there's a massive, massive growth in the demand for data, and therefore that's the imperative for 5G. It's not, you know, it's not really about, I don't think it's so much about bringing fantastic new services to market. It's more about just keeping up with the demand that people place upon the network because they want the same experience when they're out and about as they have when they're you know, in their homes or at their offices. But yes, I, I think live was great, but it was, it was very much a first stab and the real McCoy is when you could start to download proper music tracks. Now, you said something before, and I'm, I'm just going to go back to it quickly. When you said with Vodafone, one of the differentiators, one of the things that was successful was the quality of the network. And, you know, we're seeing it now that the big marketing battle in the United States is around the race to 5G. And it's all being marketed on the quality of the network, the amount of coverage. And it's quite amazing. It's like history repeating itself when you look at Verizon, T-Mobile and AT&T. All their marketing is about that coverage, right? And and so it's, it's it still exists today. But let's go back to BlackBerry, because I think this was a big turning point in the industry as a whole as well. And obviously, it was a company from Canada here that um, I, I see every morning, well, I did when I drove to the office. So t talk a little bit about your role with BlackBerry, Ivan, because that was groundbreaking. Yeah, it, it was. Well, as I was saying earlier on, 
we solved the conundrum that most business people had in the 80s, but then we were sent with a new one in the in the 90s when email became the dominant means of communication between between people and businesses predominantly. And like I was saying, there wasn't really a good solution until BlackBerry came along. I had been working quite closely with Microsoft and getting increasingly frustrated by the complexity, cost, and relatively poor functionality of what they call Pocket PC. I remember Mike Lazaridis at BlackBerry always saying, but nobody wants a PC to put in their pocket. They want something that's simple and just works, which, of course, he was right. Yeah. And Microsoft were totally wrong. They were trying to shrink the PC into a high-cost, relatively high-quality, color TFT, very, very high barrier you know, to entry, and horrifically unreliable. I mean, the only thing that, that made it feel like a PC was you had to keep pressing the reset button because the damn thing would always, um, would always lock up. So when I, <laughs> when I, when I stood, and, and there was no push email, and, and I had a meeting with BlackBerry, and I picked up this device, and within seconds, I knew how to work it. It was like it was just a part of me. It was just an extension of me because everything was completely simple and logical. And the beautiful thing about that product is that nobody had one really ever needed to have an instruction manual because all you had to do was roll that thumb wheel and press it in, and you had all your options there. So it was beautiful because it was very, very easy to, going back to what I said earlier on, that the way you define a technology, its ability to influence and change customer behavior, and BlackBerry, in a very short space of time, massively transformed the way we all behaved and the way we all interacted with email, and it made it conversational. And it came home to me. One evening, I was in the office very late, about nine o'clock, and I sent an email to Rick Costanzo, who was the, um, the guy I was dealing with at BlackBerry at the time, Normally, if I send a message at nine o'clock at night, I would expect to get a reply the next day. And seconds later, bang, came the message back. I said, wow, Rick, that's quick. You must be in the States, you know, like it must be early morning. He said, no, I'm actually um, having dinner. And I just thought, wow, that's way better than anything we do today, desktops, etc., because you just don't have that portability. You can't have that spontaneity. So for me, Certainly, in terms of what I'd joined Vodafone to do, which is to try and solve a, a, a problem for businesses who wanted to be productive, but not necessarily always tied to their desks, uh, this was doing it in spades, but for email. In those days, email was mostly plain text. There wasn't a lot of rich media. But obviously, over time, even the rich media started yeah. to be supported. So that was really important. And um, we, we were prevented from launching straight away with BlackBerry because of a deal they already had in place with the other UK telco with, with, with uh, O2. But there was a six-month uh, lockout, and we, we, we were able to do trials during that period, but we couldn't do a commercial launch. But by the time we reached the end of that period, we were ready to go and press the button. So, you know, day 181, bang, we launched, and it became the biggest carrier relationship that BlackBerry had. And in fact, I can remember there were guys at Global who were messing around with another solution using um a software vendor and for the for the mail solution and a hardware vendor and i said guys what are you doing you know the one thing blackberry has taught us is that if you align software and hardware as one single integrated solution you create something that's beautiful and works what you're doing is taking one email solution from one company and, and a hardware solution from another it's going to be really ugly. You're going to have so many problems. You're not going to know how to solve them. But for the sake of your careers, just don't make fools of yourselves. Just use BlackBerry. But I'm glad to say they took my advice. And um, <laughs> Vodafone became the biggest uh, carrier for BlackBerry in the world. Well, no, it's a precise. And I think what was amazing with BlackBerry as well that I think people forget, it was all pre-3G. It was on 2.5 GPRS. GPRS. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, it was it was efficient from a data transmission perspective, but you know, everyone was then you know thinking. And I think this, you know, when I talked about five G, the biggest question in five G is, well, what's going to be the killer use case? It's fair to say that BlackBerry and push email was the killer use case for two point five GPRS, and then it made things difficult for three G because people were like, well, what do we do? What can we do now that beats that? It, it set a very a very high bar on functionality, but right as 3G was about to launch. 
Well, of course, what happens is if you give people a very limited bandwidth and they're clever, they do what BlackBerry did, which is they create a ruthlessly efficient solution that can function with minimal latency. The moment you give people lots of process speed, lots of bandwidth, lots of battery, they get lazy. And so I, I found even when I did eventually move to iPhone, I found the email solution was if I turned an iPhone on and I didn't have 3G, I couldn't get anything at all. You could not get mail if you only had a GPRS signal. Whereas at BlackBerry, not only could you yes. get could you get mail, if I was sitting at my desk in the office, my BlackBerry would, would receive an email before the desktop. It was that quick. Mm. Yes. So yes. the latency within our within our local network was greater than the latency that BlackBerry was able to deliver using a GPRS delivery mechanism. So that was really extraordinary. Um, yes. But it was a different philosophy. And I think that was part of the downfall, really, unfortunately, of BlackBerry, which is that they saw the world purely as a, you know, from a BlackBerry perspective. And I remember once saying to Mike Lazarides, Mike, when will we support video? And he said, Ivan, what are you talking about? You know, if I want to watch video, I'm going to watch it on my 24-foot screen at home. I'm not going to watch it on a two-inch screen. What do I want that for? <laughs> and they they kept on trying to talk carriers out of 3G, and then they tried to talk them out of 4G. And unfortunately, you know, they had a really great product, but the rest of the world obviously had other plans and other aspirations. And and so ultimately, I think that was part of the problem. But yes, I, I think so far as mail goes, we'll never see as good a solution that worked as quickly and efficiently and as securely as BlackBerry um, ever again. back at the time that I had at Vodafone with great fondness and the innovation and the culture and the passion and everything. When you look back at, at, at those years, those, those, what would we say, the, the, those milestone years for Vodafone, what, what, what really stands out the most? And do you think we'll ever see anything like it again? Well, I guess we will, but, and we have done, but not necessarily in, in the field of mobile. I, I think that it was nice because actually we were in the foothills of something that was so big that we couldn't see the top of it. We were in the foothills. There was a thick cloud above our heads. We just knew we kept have to keep going up, but we had not a clue of the the, the height of that of that mountain. So I, I think in some respects it was quite nice because it was just growing. It was big, and every day it was getting bigger. And there was this phenomenal um, success culture and. In many respects, it was quite hard to fail when there was so much demand. And, and I think that what we had in Vodafone, which, which, which wasn't the case with our main competitor, is we had a very, very stable management team. So from the time that I joined the company until Sir Jerry retired, and even after that, a lot of the characters who'd been there at the start were still there. Whereas with the other businesses, there were frequent changes of regime oh, we'll get those guys out and get some kids in from IBM, and they would mess things up royally and last about two years. I can remember them putting in a massive project, which was 100 million pounds of investment down the drain two years later. And so we saw all this change going on in the competitor businesses, a lot of instability, whereas the thing that made Vodafone, I think, a great company to work in was the people who started it stuck with it for, well, yes. a decade and a half at least. And that gave the company great consistency of direction and great leadership and great stability. And if you work for a company, stability is a really important thing because it's part of your well-being. If you're working for a company where, you know, you pick up the paper and find that your boss is, is, is leaving, it's destabilizing for people. And I think that there was a great sense of well-being at Vodafone most of the time with most of the teams and people because, there, as you mentioned, there was characters like Chris. And one of the things that Chris st stood for was decency. I mean, I remember Chris, I would talk to him about certain entrepreneurs and he'd say, no, Ivan, you're not going to meet them. I don't like that person because he's a crook and we won't deal with crooks. And, you know, <laughs> you've got other people who, or people who have the Groucho Marx philosophy, which is, these are my principles. And if you don't like them, I have others. 
And Chris <laughs> and Jerry weren't like that. They, they, they had their principles, they stuck to them, and that made them people you could trust and you always knew where you stood. That's not the case in a lot of our businesses. And I think that, for me, was the most endearing quality of Vodafone for the first 15 years. And actually, you know, that's a really interesting point, Ivan, because the current CEO, Nick Reed, was there when I was there in 2002, 2000. And... He came in from Vis-a-Vis, in fact. He was a, he was a finance director in Vis-a-Vis, which is a bit yeah. like being a, a bit like being the um, minister for, for, for vegan diets in McDonald's. <laughs> Um, they didn't have any money coming in, really. But, um, you know, the, the, he, Nick, Nick had a, t- a challenging job getting to, he certainly had, I think, in, in, in that business, uh, a very, very interesting first look at the sort of the whole content side. And, and bear in mind that Vis-a-Vis as a, as, a, as a venture, which was joint venture with Vivendi, burnt through hundreds of millions of dollars and, of course, eventually um, disappeared. But um, so Nick came in from that side and then came into the uh, into the UK business. And, yeah, he's a journeyman. He's I think he's the new generation of stability that took over from the original guard. And I think Nick's got a lot of those qualities as well. I think he's somebody who people feel comfortable with, can trust, uh, and gives the company good direction, good solid counsel. But, yes, you're right. He's been there a long time. And I see there was a sort of nice... I think a nice sort of um, handing over the baton almost from, from the old guard to, to guys like Nick, who obviously um, is one of the few who've been in Vodafone for, um, uh, since, that, since that era. I think the brand for me always holds a certain excitement. And I can remember when you were talking about the, 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 the global branding and the sponsorships, et cetera. And I can remember there was a head of marketing for the group and we were having a conversation and it was to do with Omnitel, who are a very, very successful carrier, ran by Victoria, Vittorio Colau in Italy, oh, um, yes. mobile and who fixed, CEO. who became CEO. And at the time, they were very, very proud of their brand. And we had this one brand, one vision agenda. And we had to try and talk these, these acquisition partners that we'd, we'd brought into the group out of their brands and to adopt the Vodafone brand. I think that the clincher for Vittorio, the only thing that would allow him to let go of his colours and his brand and his name was the fact that we agreed to sponsor Ferrari and because Ferrari was red and Vodafone was red. Uh. That, that's like, okay, all right, well, we don't sponsor Ferrari. So, yes, if I'm going to be part of the brand sponsoring the Italian red Ferrari team, <laughs> yep, I think you've got me there. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, others weren't so hard, but uh, yes. <laughs> You know, I still have, and I think I used it the other day, I still have upstairs a Vodafone Ferrari golf umbrella that I that I acquired when I was at Vodafone UK. And I never knew that that was the story behind the, the Ferrari sponsorship. That's amazing. Well, it, it was actually, there, there were, we were looking at the time in Formula One at the beginning at, at McLaren or, or Ferrari. And I think that the decision to go Ferrari was largely influenced by the fact that it was the easiest way to get Vittorio to come on board with the global branding. Um, <laughs> uh, and it was red as we were. And therefore, you know, rather than going with the British brand um, and the British driver, because of course at the time Lewis Hamilton was with, with McLaren, but um, that, so there was a McLaren sponsorship oh, yeah. eventually. Yes. To start with, it was, it was Ferrari. And that was, I think that was, you know, that was, that was a, an exciting sponsorship deal. I can remember the three year sponsorship, cost without the hospitality packages were as much money as we spent building the 40 acre campus in Newbury. But it is, it, that was it. The, the brand became instantly recognizable around the world, right? I mean, and I, I think that was one of the things with Vodafone, wherever you went in the world, that brand was instantly recognizable from Ferrari, from Manchester United, uh, there were sponsorships in all different countries down the the Australian. Oh, yes. I think it was the Australian cricket. rugby team. Yeah, the cricket. It's amazing, yeah. and, and like I said, the technology, the people, and the brand just steamed ahead and had this incredible global recognition right overnight. So it was a really cool. Yeah, it was a great privilege to work there. I'm amazed at your the, the recollection, Ivan, of of some uh, some amazing facts and figures over the years and and the details. Really, really amazing. Yeah, well, it was a big part of my life, an exciting part. And I think that um, those big moments tend to um, leave a big impression in the mind. So you don't forget them. Um, and I suppose if you tell those stories from time to time, it helps to keep them 
keep them alive in the brain. But uh, it was there were so many great moments in, in, in that in that period. Yeah, it was truly a wonderful place. You couldn't I couldn't have ever imagined as I was growing up that I would work for a company that achieved what Vodafone did and was as much fun to work for. In the early days of selling, I was just thinking that these people must be mad. I absolutely love the product. I absolutely love selling it. I love going to see customers. And I get paid the most enormous amounts of commission every month for doing something that I love. And so, you know, it, it was it was just like, this is just, this is just, this is beyond dreams. Um, and, and I think a lot of people yeah. were surprised because uh, it, it was such a successful business. And people would say to me, you know, in 88, 89, it's not going to carry on, you know, you know, it, it's going to come to an end sooner or later. <laughs> and uh, they were saying that for a long, long time. How great to catch up with Ivan who has played such an influential and instrumental part in Vodafone's early days. You know, we live in a world where the functionality of our mobile devices and the quality of our connectivity are largely taken for granted. It's hard to believe how far we have advanced technically and how this has enhanced our lives and society in less than 40 years. It's also very interesting and fun to just pause just for a second and take a look back. Anyway, please visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash The Great Indoors, where we have some rather illuminating videos from those early days to accompany this episode, as well as a feast of other interesting assets from our guests of this season and of season one. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And if you're feeling bold and brave, please leave us a review or reach out to us on social media. Until next time, I'm Matt Roberts in Toronto for Amdocs. Have a great day wherever you are.